Heaven-Movie.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Kansas Prayer Governor Council. Sam Brownback is signed like. to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples sit here while I pray he took Peter James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death he said to them Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away, and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the scripture of the Garden of Gethsemane found in Mark, the 14th chapter, beginning with verse 32. You may be surrounded by people. You may have work associates. You may have a church family. Your life may be very busy, filled with activities constantly. But the day will come when you must get alone with God. When you can no longer satisfy the cry of your heart except by kneeling before the Almighty God alone, as though only you and God were in the whole universe. And in that place, you must do business with God. It's in that place that the final victory is won. Now you may sometimes feel like your prayer is not going any higher than the, than the ceiling. In fact, it's bouncing back down at you. 
That's merely a sign of a deeper confession that's necessary. And a very real submission to the will of God. And then he will come. I want to share with you a portion of the story of Samuel Bringle's life. He was born in a place called Fredericksburg, Indiana, June 1, 1860. When he was just two years of age, his schoolteacher father responded to the call of his country to serve in the Northern Army during the American Civil War. He was wounded in the siege of Vicksburg, and the brave young soldier returned home only to succumb to his wounds, leaving a godly wife and mother now entrusted with rearing her only child. But she faithfully instructed him in the things of God. She married again, but this new husband was constantly wanting to move. Revival services came to one place where they lived in Olney, Illinois. Young Samuel sought for peace of heart at the close of each service. He would go forward five nights in succession and he would kneel in prayer believing that such an act of dedication would make him a Christian but he had no peace in his heart. Sometime later, he was walking with his mother and they were talking together about a proposal that his stepfather had made about moving to Texas. Mother, exclaimed Samuel, I'm glad we didn't move to Texas and we shouldn't now. If we had, I might have fallen in with a rough, drunken lot of fellows, and I might have lost my soul. But we have lived here, and I have become a Christian. It was with this public declaration to his mother that suddenly a great sense of peace and rest in his soul filled his heart. And suddenly he knew beyond question that he was accepted of God. Now for weeks he reveled in this new heaven-sent experience, his heart aflame with love. But the work of redemption was not, was not complete. He would soon learn this. As he was walking home from school, one day with several of his friends an argument arose with one of the boys and one of the boys called Sam a, a horrible name it was then and there that this young Bringle became aware of the presence of evil within his heart as in retaliation he beat this young man up Immediately, the calm of his soul was lost, and instead there was a storm of confusion and distress and anger. He could no longer sense any 
closeness to his maker. And he sought forgiveness at the, thro- at the throne of grace. He was 15 years old. He threw himself into church work, becoming the assistant superintendent of the Sunday school. His eagerness for knowledge led his high school teachers to recommend that he study grammar with an excellent professor who lived about 15 miles away. His mother consented. And then his mother, after a brief illness, passed away. His soul seemed to be utterly broken, and he found refuge in his studies. And then he decided to go to college. They sold some of the farmland to finance his college education, and at 17 years of age, he enrolled as a student in what is now called DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana. His college career marked him as a brilliant scholar, particularly in oratory, and the ambition of a political career began to take shape in his life. But God had another plan for Bringle. Now and then, the thought would flit across his mind. He was almost unwilling to acknowledge that he was even thinking about it, The thought was that he should become a preacher of the gospel. Now, because of his natural eloquence, he was chosen to speak at an annual convention upon which an important matter concerning his fraternity that he was a part of had to be settled. He was so burdened with a sense of responsibility that In anguish of spirit, he prayed for divine help, and he vowed to God that if his speech accomplished its purpose, he would yield the point and he would obey God, whatever his call led him to. Well, he was very successful in this presentation at this conference. And suddenly he recalled his commitment. And he began to ask the Lord what the Lord's plan was for his life. And he was under deep conviction that God's plan for him was that he should preach the gospel. So for a brief time, he served as a circuit preacher of the Methodist Church. He was well received in the Methodist Church now, his friends advised him to take up the study of theology and and told him that he needed to go to a theological seminary. And so Sam Bringle did enroll in Boston Theological Seminary, and this decision ushered in the most important experience of his career. For eight years, he'd been painfully aware of an inner conflict between the forces of good and and of evil that resided within his own heart. He had no clear knowledge as to the, to the way the problem could be solved. In Boston, he was blessed, and just when he needed it most, 
He listened to a Dr. Daniel Steele concerning the provision of Calvary for the sin of a wayward heart, and he knew his heart was wayward even though he was a Christian. This godly teacher was able to show him from Scripture that a total and complete inner deliverance was possible. And he confirmed it by his own personal testimony. (laughs) Well, he wrote later this way, I saw the humility of Jesus and I saw my pride. I saw the meekness of Jesus and I saw my temper. I saw the lowliness of Jesus and I saw my ambitions the purity of Jesus and my uncleanness, the faithfulness of Jesus and the deceitfulness of my own heart, the unselfishness of Jesus and my selfishness, the trust and faith of Jesus and my own doubts and unbelief, the holiness of Jesus, and I saw my own unholiness. I got my eyes off everybody but Jesus and myself and I came to loathe myself. Interwoven with the knowledge that God had called him to preach was the ignoble yet insistent urge to be a big preacher, a great preacher. It was no subtle temptation. If I can only be a great preacher like Moody, perhaps I can seek the baptism and I shall have this power. And he further adds, I was seeking the Holy Spirit that I might use him rather than he might use me. The morning of January 9, 1895, found Sam Bringle awake early. His soul stirred to the depths. The Spirit of God was trying to bring him to a definite issue. Today, exclaimed the young man, I must obtain or be lost forever. But his ambition for ministerial greatness had not yet brought the cross to him. And though he prayed, Lord, if thou wilt only sanctify me, I will take the smallest, the meanest little appointment there is. His carnal heart, meanwhile, found comfort in the thought that even though he should be assigned to a small, obscure church, he could still be a powerful speaker. Then a flash of divine light discovered the enormity of his love of self to such an extent, he said, that that I broke completely before the realization. And And he said, I exclaimed, Lord, I wanted to be an eloquent preacher, but if my stammering and stuttering, I can bring greater joy to thee than by eloquence, then let me stammer and stutter. But still the Holy Spirit delayed his coming. Suddenly, however, the darkness of his soul was pierced by the words, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As I read this, I'm aware that for many of you listening, you don't really know what I'm talking about because you think in your 
strong personality that you accepted Jesus and that that was the means by which you were saved. These old timers knew the reality, however, that you are not saved by accepting Jesus. You are only saved when Jesus accepts you. And you cannot be saved. Jesus will not accept you as long as your heart is filled with yourself, with your agendas, with your ambitions, with your pride, with your selfishness, with your self-seeking with your own sense of self-righteousness, you cannot be saved. And some of you have avoided entirely this battle of the soul where you must go in before God alone and deal and let him deal with the inner workings of your soul and your heart. You've never done this. And I come and I preach this day after day and it, it goes like water off a duck's back because you've never been willing to recognize your lostness. You have assumed that you are saved because you accepted Jesus. No man has ever been saved by accepting Jesus. A man can only be saved if Jesus accepts you. this word to his heart. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bringo said, I believe that. And then suddenly the Lord, whom he sought, came suddenly to his temple. To the end of his days, Bringle never doubted the reality of this work of grace in his soul, nor did he ever cease to magnify it. Two days later, there was another manifestation of, of God that flooded his soul, very much like Charles Finney's. He says, I opened my Bible, and while reading some of the words of Jesus, he gave me such a blessing as I never dreamed a man could have this side of heaven. It was unutterable revelation of God's love. It was a heaven of love that came into my heart. My soul melted like wax before the fire. I sobbed and I sobbed. I loathed myself that I'd ever sinned against him or doubted him or lived for myself and not for his glory. Every ambition for self was now utterly gone. The pure flame of love burned into a blazing fire. I walked out over Boston Commons before breakfast, weeping for joy and praising God. Oh, how I loved in that hour, I knew Jesus, and I loved him till it seemed my heart would break with love. I was filled with love for all of his creatures. I heard the little sparrow chattering, and I loved them. I saw the little worm wiggling across my path. I stepped over it. I didn't want to hurt any living thing. I loved the dogs. I loved the horses. I loved the little urchins on the street. I loved the strangers who hurried past me. I loved the heathen. I loved the whole world. My heart was filled with love. Oh, my brother, my sister, until you've had this experience. I one night lay on my bed. The sun was setting. The room grew dark until I could not see anything. 
but I could see Jesus. And I was overwhelmed with his love. And suddenly the room was as bright as if the brightest light had been turned on. I could see every detail of the room, but I could not move my body. I was as one frozen to the bed, and the love of God just cascaded over me as I wept, knowing the glorious presence of Jesus, knowing his great love, and my heart responded to him. I cried out in love to Jesus. I can never forget that glorious day. I was just finishing college, ready to go to seminary. And I knew the acceptance of God. I knew the acceptance of Jesus. This is what Bringle was experiencing. The pouring out of the love of God. Change as a man or a woman. You can never be the same again. Now Bringle continues, To be sure, such a flood tide of emotion subsided, but in its place came the certainty and solidarity of an unwavering faith. Again he writes, One day with amazement I said to a friend, This is the perfect love about which the Apostle John wrote but it is beyond all I dreamed of. In it is personality. This love that flowed over me thinks, it wills, it talks with me, it corrects me, it instructs me, it teaches me. And then I knew that God, the Holy Ghost, was in this love and that that love was God, for God is love. Oh, the rapture mingled with the reverential holy fear for it is a rapturous yet divine, fearful thing to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to be the temple of the living God. Great heights are always opposite great depths, and from the heights of this blessed experience, many have plunged into the dark depths of fanaticism. But we must draw, we must not draw back from the experience of love through fear. All danger will be avoided by meekness and lowliness of heart, by humble, faithful service, by esteeming others better than ourselves, and in honor preferring them before ourselves, by keeping an open, teachable spirit, in a word, by looking steadily unto Jesus, to whom the Holy Spirit continually points us, for he would not have us fix our attention exclusively upon himself and his work in us, but also upon the crucified one, his work for us, that we may walk in the steps of him whose blood purchases our pardon and makes and keeps us clean. Now, Bringle is absolutely right in my experience the only thing that has saved me from fanaticism, from self-centeredness, from pride, is to let the love of God flow out of my life into the lives of others. To let the love of God flow into this broadcast that you too could sense his great love for you. Oh, it's not permissive love. 
It's a love that calls us to holiness, that calls us to turn our backs on the world, the devil, and the flesh, to turn utterly, totally, completely to Jesus. Now, as Bringle experienced this love, suddenly great doors of opportunity began to open for him. He was offered the pastorate of a very large and influential Methodist church in the northern part of the state of Indiana. Normally, he would have accepted that invitation with great pride of heart, but now it was rejected. Bringle, in his intimate time with the Lord, felt divine guidance was directing him to go to the, to go to the Salvation Army. He had heard General Booth speak. This was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he'd been greatly moved. The open-air efforts of those warriors of the cross had strange appeal. And then the Holy Spirit whispered to him and said, These are my people. These are my people. The die was cast. He determined to go to England where he could personally offer himself to General Booth and where he could receive adequate training for Christian service. He was already a graduate of a theological seminary, but he was willing to humble his heart. He had become engaged to a young salvationist, Elizabeth Swift. In every way she seemed to meet the standard he had set for himself concerning marriage, and with her full consent he set sail for England two days after their wedding. General Booth eyed Brendel coolly. "'You belong to the dangerous class,' he said. "'You have been your own boss for so long "'that I don't think you were willing to submit "'to the Salvation Army discipline. "'We are an army, and we demand complete obedience.'" However, Bringle was sent on trial to a training school where his first assignment was to black the boots of 18 other cadets. At first he was offended. And then he remembered that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and suddenly his heart began to sing for joy. Neither did he shrink from the humble quarters where he found himself the visitation routine, the every-night service, the selling of the book War Cry. After six months, he returned as Captain Bringle to America, where with his wife he began to labor for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the soldiers in the army itself to insist upon holiness wherever stationed was the passion of his heart and for 40 years his clarion call was heard all over the united states his circle of influence then widened to england to australia to new zealand to the hawaiian islands a fellow officer met bringle at a railway station in california so desirous was he for spiritual help that he could not wait for the first 
convention service. He said, I want you for myself as well. I've read your writings and I've sensed your spirit and I believe you can help me. I've grown a little dry in my own soul. This man and two other Salvation Army officers later engaged in daily prayer that Samuel Logan Bringle would be set aside by the army for spiritual work only. That is, for building up the spiritual life among the officers and the soldiers. They petitioned headquarters to this effect. And their request was granted. This recognition of Colonel Bringle as a prophet of God seemed to have coincided with his own sense of call for we find this entry in his diary. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he did not let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. What earthly honor and fame can compare with this? What dignity to be a prophet of the Lord? Now, Bringle never dealt in generalities. Having seen the sin of his own heart, he knew what was in a man. More than one hearer declared that Bringle preached directly at him. He was never guilty of making his congregation feel that they could in any way temporize their submission to God. Now is the day of salvation, he declared, and, and wherever he proclaimed the gospel, the penitent found spiritual victory. Let's stop for just a moment. I know by the struggle of my own soul, the struggle of your soul, And many of you have pushed that struggle aside. You have the pricking of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And yet you've put family ahead of Jesus. You've put your children ahead of Jesus. One man I know said, I, I can't completely come and follow Jesus because if I do, my wife will leave me. I said, no, my brother, if you will dedicate yourself to Jesus, your wife will come and follow Jesus with you. He still has not made that commitment to Jesus. And he has destroyed the spiritual life of his children as they have now grown up in their sin. He came to the worship service recently. And much to my sadness, when communion came, he turned and walked away. After the service, I found him. And I said to him, My brother, how can you turn and reject Jesus Christ? How can you turn and reject Jesus? 
And yet many of you who listen have rejected Jesus. You've gone after the ambition of your heart. You want your own church, or you want a pastor to fawn over you and consider you to be great, wants a a position, wants to be a deacon or an elder. You want to be a deaconess. You want to be an armor bearer. You want to be somebody recognized. And so you stay in that worldly church because, oh, I I want to be somebody. You have in your heart the worship of self. You still walked in the lust of the flesh, over and over turning to it, chastising yourself and then turning back to it. You've discovered that by trying you cannot defeat lust. You've discovered by trying that you cannot defeat anger and bitterness. And so that root of bitterness has grown deep into your heart. You count the wrongs of others. You must come to a place where you recognize that you can never overcome your sin that it is only Jesus who can overcome your sin. You're going to have to come and kneel before the Lord. You're going to have to come and acknowledge your sin and recognize that You can't do it. (laughs) Have you come to that place yet? I know many of you have not. You have never engaged in the struggle of the soul. You have cast it aside. You have treated it as a small and light thing. You know what is right and what is wrong. And instead of walking in righteousness, you have turned in rebellion and said, but I don't want that. I don't want that. Jesus was our Lord and our Savior, and he had no sin in his heart. But he came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he was deeply distressed and he was troubled. Psalm 69, 20 and 21, scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. This was the prophecy of how Jesus would feel emotionally as it came time to go to the cross. And surely that was fulfilled as his disciples slept. And the God of heaven had to send an angel to comfort the heart of Jesus. 
that Jesus finally came to that place of of absolute surrender where he says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Oh, there is a crucifixion for you that is a must if you are to be saved. You must be transformed into a person of holiness. You must be transformed with your sin removed with full victory over every every sin that comes not by hard work it comes by the holy spirit by the blood of jesus Now this man, Bringle, this colonel in the Salvation Army, received a startling message. Is that he was appointed to number one Boston Corps. He said later that a feeling of faintness came over him. He read the telegram. This corpse was located in an extremely difficult area. Poverty and drink, crime, degraded the inhabitants among whom he would be working. Quiet for study and writing would seem impossible. What is more, the the hall was not far from the theological institute that he had attended in Boston. Former fellow students would be visiting him in his anything but enviable quarters. Boston spelled to him a living martyrdom. He prayed, Lord, why do I feel this way? Am I proud? Is this appointment an offense to my pride? Am I not dead to these things? He then read the declaration of St. Paul. I am right. I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He could not but exclaim, Dear Lord, I too will be faithful. I am willing not only to go to Boston and to suffer there if necessary, but I am willing even to die in Boston for thee. Little did he foresee how near he would come to dying nor could he know the blessed outcome of the spiritual interests for posterity. The Bringles proceeded to Boston, where much blessing attended his ministry. And then one night a drunkard who was enraged because he had been ejected from the service hall hurled a brick, a paving brick, which struck Bringle on the side of the head. The devoted man, however, hovered then between life and death for 18 months. He was not able to preach. The message of holiness burned in his bones. Mrs. Bringle later painted on the offensive stone the words of Joseph referring to his brother selling him as a slave. As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to save much people alive. 
He was asked the secret to his life of holiness. This was two years before his final death. This is what he wrote. Keep in the will of God. Obey him. Seek him daily. Wait at his gate. Oh, I can tell you, my brothers and sisters, I call you to wait with me at the gate of God for revival in America. I call upon you to obey the will of God, to join together with me in walking in full and complete sanctification in holiness. I testify before you today I have been sanctified by the power of God. I have been filled with His Spirit. Will you come and will you wait with me at the gate? Come to the prayer chapel. Wait with me at the gate for the opening of revival in America. He said, read the Bible regularly. Never neglect secret prayer. Keep testifying to the grace bestowed upon you. Help others. That's why I have to come on this station and say to you, you can live holy before God. You can put away all sin by the power of the blood of Jesus, not by trying hard. You can put away the sin but you're going to have to kneel before God and you're going to have to do business with him as though he were the only one in the universe. You're going to have to weep before him. You're going to have to deal to the depths as you have avoided to this point doing. All religious spirits are going to have to be cast off. You're going to have to humble yourself before others and before God. I've been asked again if the realization of sanctification has been ever waning during the past 50 years. Judging by my emotions, yes. Judging by my volition, my voluntary court, no. He writes, there have been times when my emotional experience has ebbed out, and I wondered whether I had lost my Lord in my experience. Once I was sure I had, and I, I cast away my confidence, and for 28 days was sorely tempted and, sh and sifted by the devil. When deliverance came, for I was not cast away, I discovered that my will had not waned in its purpose, but had held fast to Jesus Christ in the midst of the emotional storm and the desolation that had swept over my soul. To all my tempted comrades, I would say, hold fast, be faithful, regardless of how you feel, for Christ will never leave his own. He knows the way you take. He too was tempted for 40 days and nights of the devil. The trial of faith and loyalty proved to be one of the greatest blessings, he says, of my life. Sanctification has meant complete abandonment to the will of God, but not in such a way that my will has become passive 
in its functioning. It, it has had to be and has been active and firm, assertive in purpose to be the Lord's. Every morning when I wake up, I say, Lord, I will serve you today, and I will trust you to keep me from all sin. I will trust you to keep my heart quiet and steadfast before you. I've not been allowed to sit in passive rapture, singing myself away to everlasting bliss. God and man must cooperate. They must work together, both in the reception and in the continuance of the blessing. It is done by faith and by a solid determination that comes by the power of the blood that I will serve Jesus Christ. Regardless of the cost, I will serve Jesus Christ. Though others turn away from me, though others reject me, though all opportunity is lost, I will serve Jesus. The great heights are set over against the great depths. So the highest attainments are set over against the dark depths of fanaticism. And the only way to escape falling into that abyss is by being humble-minded and praying such a prayer as David's. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. I have prayed for years that my light and my love might keep step with each other. Light without love may lead to pride, may make us self-righteous and give us a false sense of superiority. Love without light may lead to great indiscretions and false judgments and fanaticism. I know a man who has great, great light and then turns to fornication and uncleanness. The love of God in your heart must match the, the light of God in your heart. As the light increases, so must also increase the love and the, the obedience to Jesus. The humbleness of heart, the serving of others, the giving up of my own way. We must beware of thinking that there is no further development for us I know a man who, who has great knowledge of scriptures. He can sit down and teach in an erudite manner on almost any spiritual subject. But he has no witness of righteousness to match the light he holds. And so his testimony is powerless, empty. He feasts on the entertainment of the world. He feasts on the television. He feasts on the activities of the flesh. But he's very erudite 
in his teaching of the gospel. He's been cast into the desert, and he's angry about it. But God cannot use this man until the love and obedience match the light he's been given. We are bidden to grow in grace. We've entered into a rich grace through the act of being utterly and totally sanctified. We are to grow in it, but we cannot grow into it. I want you to catch that. He writes, We have entered into a rich grace through this act of sanctification, and we are to grow in it, though we cannot grow into it. Do you remember John, the 15th chapter? John, the 15th chapter. We're told that the Father prunes the vine, the branches. The vine's branches are pruned. And we are the branches, and Jesus is the vine. Why does he prune? Well, because you cannot grow out of blight. It must be cut off. You cannot grow into sanctification, as is the lie being taught by the modern church. They teach that you must spend your whole life struggling to be sanctified and then you'll get more rewards when you get to heaven it's a lie you cannot grow into sanctification it is a work of god it is a work of the spirit it is a finished work of the spirit and then we grow in maturity we grow in our sinlessness. You cannot grow out of sin. Jesus only had one method of dealing with sin, and that was amputation. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pull it out. He writes, We may and should increase daily in knowledge, in good judgment, in understanding, and ever-increasing love and devotion to God and to well-being of our fellow men. Jesus himself grew in wisdom as he grew in stature and in truth. We should forever get rid of the idea that sanctification is purely an emotional condition. It is a volitional condition. You cannot, however, have any great inner experience without emotion one of the greatest dangers to our faith today is the fear probably born of pride that people have of emotion they're so anxious to be balanced and well poised that they cease to be vital and natural they become icy and cold and null well we need to end there this dear brother in Christ, Sam Bringle, died in 1931. Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
I ask, Lord, would you begin the battle in the hearts of my brothers and sisters? Would you cause it to go on the front burner? Lord, start this work of struggle in the hearts of your people and bring it into full sanctification. I pray in your holy name, amen. I ask and invite you to give to help continue this broadcast on air. We're coming to the end of the month and we're far from being able to cover the cost yet for the month. Write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I also invite you to come and worship with us this Sunday. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, and there you will find our contact information, our address, where we meet. Come and join us this Sunday. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I'm Pastor Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I'll talk to you soon.